0: So today we're talking about trials, and there's hardly ever a more relevant topic to our lives than that. This is the topic that that God has brought up through the book of James for us today. And what he's saying at the beginning there, guys, is that, that trials, they come for us all. Every human being on the planet right now is either recovering from some type of personal trial in the midst of a trial or about to be met with yet another trial. And I do think it'd be good even for you, like as we've, as we've looked at the trials that are happening around us, to just hold before God for a second, take a deep breath and pause and recognize the personal that you're in, where you're at in that mix. And James says that there's these trials of various kinds that we're gonna meet. So all different types of trials, great and small. We've obviously been witnessing just this global trial, the COVID-19 pandemic that has been both a a shared experience that we've all felt, but also a varied experience as we've all suffered and felt it differently. But this week, we've seen the death toll reach over 100,000 in our own country. And then amidst that death, we've seen the three very public unjust deaths three image bearers of God who weren't treated like they were image bearers of God, Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. And then beyond that, we've seen more violence unleashed in cities across the country where peaceful protests were then followed later on by other people with riots, violent riots. These are definitely trying times for our country in our world. And then on top of that, on top of all of that, we all have the own trials of our own life that don't get caught on video and that all the world doesn't see that aren't talked about in the news. And what James wants to do today is he wants to shepherd us through this. He wants to shepherd us through how we can respond to trials in our lives. And if you listen to the passage, what he says is is surprising. It's not normal, but it's possible. He's going to say that when we meet trials, we should actually count them all as joy. He's going to say that rather than breaking us, our trials can somehow bless us. This approach to trials that James describes here reminds me of a quote from this pastor in the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon. He was a pastor who who suffered from deep depression, debilitating physical illness, and then a ton of public criticism. This is what he said. He said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. The waves that throw me. He's talking about trials, the inevitability of trials, and then the inevitability that they're going to throw us somewhere. They're going to change us. But he says he's learned to, to kiss those waves. Kiss. This is the same idea that James has of, of counting them as joy when we meet them. Considering yourself blessed by them. Why? Why? He says, because they throw me against the rock of ages. Rock of ages, it's an identity, a title for God from Psalm 94 that identifies him as a refuge for us in the midst of the trials of this life. And so Spurgeon with this quote, he's saying, through tears, I have learned to embrace, to kiss the waves of my depression that throw me against my God. Through grimacing pain, I have learned to embrace my illness as a joy because it throws me Towards my Redeemer. And in this message this morning, it's it's those words like I have have learned to kiss the waves that I want to explore. Like, can that be true for us? Rather than drowning in them, raging against them, or barely keeping our head above water, can we learn to kiss the waves? Can we learn to kiss the waves? And to do that, basically I want to look at James chapter one, and first, just what we need to do is understand what is even happening in trials. What's happening in these waves so that we can navigate them before we can kiss them? And then second, we need to realize why being thrown against this rock, this rock of ages, is the greatest joy and goal of our lives. And so let's start first with trying to understand what's happening in the wave of trials so that we can kiss them. And James' teaching is this, okay? James is teaching us in chapter 1 that every trial— is both a test of our faith and a temptation to sin. Every trial is both a test from God and a temptation from Satan. Look back at verses two through four. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking And nothing. And then in verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the idea here is that every trial is actually this opportunity, this test to trust and love God. To pass the test is to remain steadfast or to endure in our faith and in our love. Both faith and love in this passage, they essentially mean like holding on to Jesus. Being steadfast means enduring in this, actually holding on to him even tighter because of the pressure that the trial is causing. This is a theme that goes throughout the whole Bible. First Peter chapter one expands on this same idea of joy and trials. He says this, in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested newness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the result of remaining steadfast in trials, James says, is that we grow in maturity. We receive this crown of life, which is going to be this incredibly intimate moment of receiving the love and the approval and the blessing of God. Peter describes this as resulting in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So every trial is a test, an opportunity. But then James also says, We rejoice when we meet trials, but then he says, Do not be deceived, because every trial is also a temptation. There's a temptation contained inside of every trial. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And so there's a Greek word in here, it's parasmos, and it's the same, it's the same word every time, whether it says trial or test or temptation, he's always using the same word, but it just depends on the context, whether this trial or temptation. This is what James wants us to know. Every trial, it's an opportunity to love and trust God or a temptation to distrust God, which is called sin. But it's not as if God is tempting us. He actually says it's our own desire that capitalizes on this opportunity for sin. So let me just try to Picture this for us, and then we'll talk about a couple examples so we can see how this plays out. Because again, we're trying to understand how these waves work, how these trials work. So I've got a little picture that I drew here. I'm just going to try to like picture it for you. So in the center here, you have a, a trial, this singular trial, but then it bridges off in different directions. You either have a temptation or you have a test. One trial contains both a temptation and a test. If you go down the temptation route, if your desire is lured away, It says it gives birth to sin. It says there's this conception that happens where your temptation gives birth to sin, which then becomes this further degrading and immaturity all the way leading to being full-grown death. But then on the other side, from that same trial, there is always a test, an opportunity where your desire can actually be lured in the opposite direction. Your desire can be lured in the opposite direction of having faith, endurance, love, which leads to maturity, which leads to having this crown of life. So it's this divergent direction. Our desire either conceives and gives birth to faith or to sin. This is what's happening in our heart when we meet these waves of trials. It's either lured or enticed toward God or away from God. So just a couple of examples. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, this, this tree right, that God placed in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was placed in the garden by God as, listen, an opportunity, a test for Adam and Eve to choose him. That tree was put in the garden so that Adam and Eve would have the ability to say, God said, don't eat from that tree, but to choose him. And they would have the opportunity for love because this is how love works in relationship. The opportunity to choose God over choosing the tree. But instead, what happened is they were tempted. That very same tree which God put there as an opportunity so they could choose him, they were lured away by it. Their desire, it conceived with this lie about God and they sinned. So we see that that one tree is both a test and a temptation. This is how sexual desire works as well. Sexual desire is a good thing that God created and then every man or woman that is in front of you can either be an object of your love or an object of your lust? And in this same way, every person, every image bearer of God is both a, a test and a temptation. Will you choose to love them or will you choose to lust after them? And, and I know that sometimes when it comes to sexual temptation, we, we, we've been in these moments where we ask God to just completely take it away from us. Like, Lord, take away this temptation. But when we start to realize what's happening, for God to just take away the temptation for lust he would also have to take away your opportunity for love. Your your desire, your good capacity you have, this sexual desire. It's both a test and a temptation. Now, the example that he actually uses in this passage, if you go to verses 9 through 11, is of a different type of desire, a good desire, a desire for, for status. Look at verses 9 through 11. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So that's that's the test. It's to, to boast in this thing. We'll explain it. But in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. That's the test part. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So, that last part is an example of what it would look like to give in to the particular temptation that's being talked about here. So, here's what's going on. We all rightly desire, right? Rightly desire a sense of status and security and identity in this world. That is a good thing. It is a good thing to have a firmly rooted sense of identity. But what James is saying is that our boast should not be in our Earthly identity, but in our heavenly identity. And what your boast is, your boast is this, this kind of impulse of your heart that chooses to place its identity in something, to have confidence in something. So, like, the most simple example is we boast in our favorite sports team by like wearing the hat, wearing the jersey, and it's like this I, I identify with this particular team, right? I identify this group. It's, it's called a, a boast, a brag. And what James is saying here is that when it comes to our desire for status, to pass the test is to boast in our heavenly identity, not in the identity that's been assigned to us on earth, our earthly status. And notice what he's, what he's doing here. He's talking about how, how the low status and the high status people have basically been brought to the same playing field. The low have been exalted, the high status, the rich have been humbled. He's talking about what happens with the gospel, what happens at the cross of Christ, how it actually levels the playing field of identity and status. The cross both exalts the lowly and then it humbles the rich or the high in status. What Jesus did on the cross for the lowly, those who are oppressed and marginalized in this world when it comes to status, is he's exalted them to a place of dignity and honor by saying, you are worthy for me to die for you. And I've adopted you into my family. He's lifted them up. But then at the very same time, what Jesus was doing on the cross for those that have a a high status or those that have riches was to humble them, to bring them down and say, hey, your riches on earth were not enough to merit favor with God. And so the gospel is experienced as this deeply humbling experience. And when it's all said and done, we're both on this same level playing field. This is the beautiful thing. People of a very different status on earth are very um, much equal the same by God, brothers and sisters of the same family. And so the test, the example that he's giving is to boast in our heavenly identity. And that brings us together in unity. But the temptation is to boast so much in our earthly status that it leads to things like comparison and division. And he warns and says all those earthly statuses are eventually going to fade away. And so it's pretty obvious when we look at the world how, how trials can lead us to division. It leads us to take sides from each other and against each other. But, but listen to this important point that James is making about the relation between divisions in the midst of trials. He says, hey, the fundamental division that a trial is creating is not a division based on political lines or racial lines or opinionated lines about how we should open up the country. He's not saying like inside of a trial, the division that you need to care the most about is which side you're on in those different things. And it is a good thing to have different ethnicities and races. It is a good thing to have different political parties. It's a good thing to have different opinions. That's actually how we move forward as a culture. But what James is saying is don't find your supreme identity, your boast in those places because it leads to comparison and division. What he actually says is the fundamental division that all of us should care about in the midst of a trial is are we on the side of God or sin? The test or the temptation. Is our desire being oriented biblically or is our desire being oriented merely taking its cues from the culture? This is like the fundamental thing that we need to be concerned with in trials as Christians is are we on God's side in this? So to remain steadfast in trials that divide is to remember, like Ephesians 6 says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he's not talking about earthly government. He's talking about the satanic, demonic influences in our world. He's saying we are against sin, not people. And this doesn't mean that the path forward is always simple and easy in the midst of a trial where there's being division. It doesn't mean it's simple. It's actually often incredibly difficult and complicated. But listen, what it does mean, the picture that James is giving us here of this particular trial is that we're all on this level playing field before the foot of the cross. And for Christians, for the people of God, in the midst of a trial like we're going through right now, we are to meet one another at the foot of the cross as equal image bearers of God, humbly seeking to pursue God's hearts and goals in the trial together. It's not easy. It's complicated, but the only answers that will side with God will be discussed and figured out in light of the cross on this equal ground. So James is saying that trials, they're, they're inevitable, right? They're like waves of the sea, but we do have a choice in how we respond to them and how we experience them. We can learn to kiss the waves or, as verse six says, we can get swept away just like them. And as I read it this week, it all seems to come down to what happens with our desire. As he says in verses 13 through 16, what will our desire be lured away and enticed by? What will our desire conceive with? If you go back to our metaphor, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me Against the rock of ages. The desire isn't for the waves. He, he's not kissing the waves because the waves are good. We kiss the waves because they bring us to the rock of ages. In other words, we count our trials as pure joy because they bring us to God, because we desire Him more than anything else in the world. So let's consider now for a second just our, our desire for the rock of of ages because unless we desire God, we won't want to kiss the waves. So if you remember a minute ago, when we were just kind of looking at how, how this works, you have this trial that breaks off in these different directions towards a test and a temptation. It's at the point of, of desire that it bridges off. Our desire, it says, either conceives and gives birth. Interesting language, right? Our desire conceives and then gives birth to either faith or to sin. James says our desire is either lured and enticed toward God or away from him. And so we got to ask the question, what is our desire being lured away by? There's going to be two parties in conception, right? Like what is, our, what is our desire conceiving with that either then gives birth to, to faith or to sin? Well, look back at, at verse 13. It says, let no, let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And then, listen to what he says next Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. He says, don't be lured away. Don't let your desire conceive with something that is going to lead forth to death. And then he says, do not be deceived. Pointing to the fact that what it is, is it is a, a lie that lures us away. Do not be deceived by this lie that will conceive with your desire and actually lead you towards sin and lead you away from God. He's saying when we sin, our desires are lured away by a lie. It conceives, gets intimately acquainted with this lie. Then it has a baby called sin, and that baby grows up to be full-grown death. And so what is this lie? What is this lie that we need to not be deceived by? Well, look how he continues. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And then he says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the lie that began in the Garden of Eden. The lie that began in the Garden of Eden is that God is not good. That God is is somehow holding out on us. That's why he doesn't want us to eat from this one tree. He's like, he's holding out something on you. That God cannot be trusted and therefore You need to take matters into your own hands. You need to be the Lord of your own life. You need to sin. And now what James is doing is he's countering that lie with the truth about God. That's what he's saying in verses 17 through 18. He's lifting up God and saying, look at his character. He is good. In fact, every perfect and good gift comes down from him. He's not holding out on you. He's like this generous father And he can be trusted. You can trust his heart. He doesn't change like a shadow. And his intentions for you are unbelievably glorious. And James, he's sharing this with us so that we will orient our desire toward that truth in the trial and trust him. We will orient our desire towards that truth. We'll remain steadfast and we'll actually hold on to him even tighter in our trials because we see this truth about him, who he is, so clearly. Look at how James describes us. He says, "We are these people who have been brought forth by the word of truth." It is the word of truth that makes us different. Meaning God has spoken this truth about who he is deep into our hearts. And that truth has conceived with your desire at the core of who you are in your heart, that truth of the gospel, the truth of who God is. God has proved his trustworthiness to you in this word of truth, the gospel. And it's brought about faith. And there's a once and for all aspect of this word, faith, that we are, we are saved, we've come into relationship, and then we've been born again as these first fruit, these new creatures, as he talks about. But then listen, in the same way that a human baby is conceived and then grows and then is given birth, that's only the beginning of their life. The whole rest of their life is now played out in this dynamic relationship, at least in the, the early years of trusting their parents, and growing into maturity. And so I don't know where you're at today in the midst of of trials, but what I want to do now is just open up that that word of truth to us. Open it up to, to your heart and just give you a clear picture of who God is in the midst of your trial so that we can learn to kiss the waves that throw us against that trustworthy God. And so here's a couple things that this text says are true about God. Number one, God is good and he is generous. James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. This includes anything and everything good in all of our lives, it's all from him. And so don't let what you've lost in this trial or any other trial in your life make you blind to the goodness of God, the generosity of God in your life. And I think this text should even remind us of just the most generous gift that ever came down from heaven. His name is Jesus. God sent him down for us. And if all God ever did was save our souls from eternal hell and give us eternal life and joy with him in heaven, if that's all that he ever did, the only gift he ever gave you, wouldn't that be enough? Listen, do not be deceived in the trial. You can't look at the word of truth, the cross of Jesus Christ, and say that God is not good and that he is not generous to give up his only son. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy. Look at the truth of the gospel. Number two, the second thing that in the midst of the trial, you need to look at God and you need to see this, is that God is is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. We can trust him in the storm. We can remain steadfast. James says, with him, there is no variation or shadow due to change. And one of the things that often happens to us in our trials is we lose trust. We get so wounded, so hurt, so deceived, so abandoned by people that we lose all trust. And that's totally understandable. That's life in a fallen world. But do not be deceived. That's not God. You don't have to feel that way about God. He doesn't change. You can trust him in your trials. He's actually the source of the very source of all goodness and love. And that will never change. He cannot, he, James says he cannot be tempted to evil. Like nothing that he's doing in your life is to, is, is, has any evil intent at all. This is such a comfort. Sta- stack this up, verse two. Stack verse two up with verse 17 that we've been reading. Verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, various kinds of trials. And then, match that with the truth about God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we will face various trials in this life, but there is a, a variable that does not change, and that is God himself. There is no variation in him. He is unchanging. He is the solid rock that we stand on amidst like the uncertainty and the choppy waves Of this life. If your life feels dark in the trial, He is the light that will never go out. Number three, third truth, third thing you need to see in your heart, the third thing that your desire needs to see about God and it needs to become intimately acquainted with this reality is that God is loving. God is loving. If we are ever going to trust God in our trials, we need to be sure of his intentions for us. And these are some verses that allow us to, to just look deeply into his heart. Verse 18, I wanna read this one kind of slowly. He says, he's just telling us this about God. He says, of his own will, of, of his own will, his decision, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Us, you, your story. Every every trial, everything that's ever happened to you in your life, of his own will, of his own internal decision, he brought you forth by the word of truth. Why? That we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. Of his own will. Deep inside the heart of God. Do you know what is deep inside the heart of God? When he looks at you. Deep inside his heart, there was a decision. There was a will and it was his own. It was not coerced by anything. He just made an internal decision to do what? To bring you forth. This is the language of adoption into his family. He had this internal, just just heart yearning desire for you and it was his intention to, to bring you forth, to give you a new birth, to free you from the slavery and the condemnation of sin and to be your father. This is his good intention for you. In the midst of the trial, In the midst of any any betrayal or pain that you're feeling, don't doubt God's good intention for you because this is it. This is as deep as you can look into his heart. Of his own will, he brought you forth. Let that, just let that sink in. This is how God feels about you. And then he did this by the word of truth, right? If if he brought us forth is like the language of adoption, By the word of truth. This is the language of conception. He brought us forth by the word of truth. This is a reference to the gospel. This word of truth, this true word about who God is. Jesus Christ coming into our hearts, telling us the truth about God, most evidently displayed on the cross and then through his resurrection. And it is this gospel this word of truth that we need to see and we need to believe in every trial we need to become intimately acquainted with that truth so that when all these various trials and waves come we because they throw us against him we see the waves and we give them a kiss because they're actually bringing us closer to the god who we love and who loves us we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. If if you're in a trial right now that has left you feeling isolated, alone, betrayed, unloved, James would say to you, do not be deceived. That exact trial that you're in, it's actually there's a temptation to be deceived, but there is a, a test, an opportunity. God is holding out his hand. For you to step further into maturity with him and deeper into his love. You are a a first fruits kind of creature. That means a special, set apart, new creation that he deeply values. You are not alone. All right, and we're going to close with this. God has in this text he's shown us his heart in our trial. That is the defining thing that James is doing here. He's helping us understand what's even happening in trials and that we actually have a choice. We have a choice between test and temptation, but then he's holding out God's heart to us and saying, trust him, remain steadfast in him. Look at the reward that he has waiting for you. He wants to give you the crown of life. There is no bad intention in his soul towards you, only love. So this is God's heart, but now it's time to show him ours. If we're gonna learn to kiss the waves, we're gonna learn it as James talks about in in like the school of prayer because prayer is where the battle for faith is fought. It's where the battle against sin is fought. It's where everything we just talked about is going to happen. That's why he talks about it in verses five through eight. Listen, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So this, this picture that James is giving us of prayer is in some ways like the opposite of the metaphor that we've been using. He, he talks about this doubting person who is like a wave that is just tossed around by the wind, but not tossed into to God. And this is a text that has like caused problems for me of trying to figure out, because I'm like, is this saying that I have to have like perfect certainty, no, no wrestle, no struggle, no questions, no doubts, or else you're not going to answer my prayer? And I was so helped by a, a theologian named Alec Mateer, who wrote a commentary on James, addressing this very tension. And it's so interesting what he says, so helpful what he says. Listen to what he says. He says, James is not talking about doubting God's intentions here, but doubt regarding our own intentions towards God. Listen, listen to this, like just excerpt I took from this commentary. He says, verse five holds before us the unquestioned sincerity of God who desires our progress to maturity and who therefore, as far as he is concerned, will not withhold from us the wisdom that we need. Okay, did you, did you catch that? He's saying God is, is clear about his desire and his intention for us verses 6 through 8 raises the question not of God's sincerity but our sincerity. Do we want to go forward with God? Are we wholeheartedly committed to his way of seeing things and his ambitions for our future? Are we keeping a door open for the world? God's mind is clear but are we double-minded? So you see what he's saying? It's, it's not as if we have to have like this perfect faith and trust and belief in God with no struggle, with no wrestle because that just isn't human, that isn't even biblical but what we do have to have is an intention that says, God, the wisdom that I'm asking you for through this trial, I actually want it. I'm not, I'm not just like using you to get out of this trial. I actually want you to give me the wisdom to go through it. This is the question for us in the trial. Not can God help me but do I really want God? Do I really want What he wants. Do I really want to go forward with God? Or in the midst of this trial, do I want to go forward with sin? We've seen God's intentions for us. He wants to give us the crown of life. But what are what are our intentions? Sometimes this is revealed in the midst. We read verse twelve and it's amazing, but but do we want that crown? Is that like the highest and deepest goal of our life, our greatest joy? Or are we more concerned with earthly crowns? And in the midst of a trial, the wisdom that we want is how to, get, how to get that, not how to get to the heavenly crown. Do we want wisdom for our trial or do we just want to get out of the trial? God has shown us his heart, but, but we need to, to check ours. And James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So, Doxa, if you want wisdom for navigating the trials of your life in our world right now, if you want, if you desire, if your intention is to learn to kiss the waves that throw us further into the arms of our Father, then this is exactly what God wants to give us and this is exactly what we need. So let's go to him now. Father, we we are totally sinful and we confess that. God, there's so, there's so much in just this beginning part of James that just, it, start, it startles us and it, at the same time, it comforts us. And I'm just struck by this, this invitation you have to, to give us wisdom, but then this, this qualifier that, that you want us to actually want you and you want us to actually want the things that you want. So God, help us to get there. God, we're saying as a church that, that yes, we have, we have unbelief, we have doubts in our heart, but help us in our unbelief. God, we want to walk forward towards you. God, the vision that James lays out of, of kissing the waves that come our way, counting them all as joy, we want to live that life. God, we don't want to be broken by our trials. We actually want to be blessed through them. God, we want to emerge on the other side of them, steadfastly, holding on to you. So God, our hearts are open, our hands are open. We are ready for you to change us in this season. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.